Everybody have a Bible? Grab your Bible if you would. Love my Bible. Just love looking in the Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Anybody ever played Mancala? The little jumping game with the little marbles on each side? Hate playing with my older kids. Teach them games and then they beat you. I don't like that. But Truett, my four-year-old, I got him. So I'm teaching my two-year-old Rhett, my four-year-old Truett, Mancala. And if you land on an empty square, you get to steal the marbles from the other side and pull them over. Oh, okay. And then, you know, all carnage breaks loose. I mean, call it marbles are going everywhere except where they're supposed to go. They're out of turn. They're just, they obviously don't understand how to play this game. And I'm kind of like, this is not really a game. This is more just throw the marbles around and pick them up on the floor. And then all of a sudden, Truett when Rhett does not respond to him taking the marbles out of one side to the other side, says, Dad, he's not following the rules. You said if there's an empty square, I get to take those from the other side. And immediately I thought, that is 100% right. What what Truett said was 100% right. But he's so far away from the understanding of the game that that demonstration of what's right and wrong really doesn't matter. There's, there's really no weight to that because we've got so many other things to cover before we get to that one rule in the game. And I love this passage. This was on my heart this morning in 1 Thessalonians 3. Oftentimes, we know we can be dead right about something and the other person could be dead wrong. And Paul says, but if we don't have love in that, really, it really doesn't mean anything because you're so far away from the understanding of that Trinitarian love that's available to you and God's immense love and affection for the entire world that that's not really what we need to be talking about right now. Right now, we need to back way, way, way up and talk about the bigger picture issue. And so 1 Thessalonians Chapter 3, Paul's writing to this group of people. This is one of his first letters here. And he's, he's writing in response here in chapter 3 to a report that Timothy brought back about the Thessalonian church there, who had undergone major suffering and tribulation, trials. It's, it's uh, 13 verses long, I believe. And the phrase, your faith is mentioned five times in 13 verses. Paul is obsessed with this in, this in this chapter here. And so when we could stand it no longer, Paul says, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So that none of you would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. 
For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out again about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain because there's four soils and three of the four often just don't work out. They don't come up. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and he brought a good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? And he prays. So night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love abound and increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you so that he may strengthen your hearts to be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. Five times, your faith, your faith, your faith. And then he gets to a little bit of a backhanded sentence right here where he says, we've heard about your faith and love. Now we're praying for you that you may come into completion and that we may help supply what's lacking in your faith. And so the Thessalonians reading this are like, oh, I thought he was just saying we're doing really good right now. But now he's saying there's a big hole in your faith right now. And I'm praying earnestly that God himself would supply what's lacking in your faith. What's lacking? Love. Verse 12, may the Lord himself, because he's the only one that can do it. May the Lord himself make your love abound and increase and overflow for each other and for all. Because it's really the Lord's love inside of us. It's not our love in the first place. And so the Lord has to draw his love out of us for each other first and for everyone else, for the world. May the Lord do that. Why? So that I, I want the love that's in you to come up out of you. Why? So that you will be strengthened and established in your heart. And you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. So how is it that he's getting us to being strengthened and established and holy? Well, it's through the overflow of the Lord's love from within us coming out of us for the church and for everyone else. And this is a fascinating thought for me. Because what he's saying is, as you allow the Lord to flow through you in love, your heart is actually established in love. As you do what you were made to do, you're established in the thing that you were made to do. I don't love people very much. I don't love people like the Lord does. Lord, help, help the love that you put in me to overflow from my heart. And then you begin to get in touch with his heart and know him more deeply. So this is a prayer I've been praying for us here for the last couple of weeks specifically. And I want to encourage you to pray for Thessalonians 3. 
over yourself. Lord, that you would make your love within me come out from me, that I might understand your heart and know you. So I put in the lineup. I I said, this is intimacy with the Lord, knowing the Lord, part five. We've been on a, a thread of going with this for a little while here. And I want to tell you a couple of stories to help paint a picture of who the Lord is in, his, in the depth of his, of his love and in, in, on the other side in his righteousness here. And the stories I want to tell, are they come out of the books of Jonah and, and Nahum. Before we get there, let, let's go back, if we could, and, and look at what the Lord says about himself in Jeremiah chapter 9, if you would. Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 9. And Jeremiah 9 verse 23, this is after a whole chapter of judgment and what the Lord's going to do to those people that turned against him. And he says in verse 23, Jeremiah chapter 9, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches and wealth. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that he understands and knows me, ESV says, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness or goodness and merciful love, justice and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And you and I similarly begin to delight in these the more and more we're transformed into his image. Now listen again. The Lord says, don't boast about anything that you have or anything that you've ever accomplished, but boast that you have the understanding to know me the one who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And in fact, in these things, I delight. I have a passion for these things, the Lord says. My kindness knows no bounds. My justice is more exacting than you could ever imagine. And my righteousness stands firm like the mighty mountains. You have no idea who you're dealing with, but come to know me and I'll reveal myself to you. Well, This is the Lord and his heart. And he wants to invite us in to know that and to begin to live like him on the planet. And we have stories in the scriptures that are just unbelievable about the Lord's kindness to those who were so wicked, right? Like especially us. We were so wicked. He was so kind to us. But I think Jonah really helps me understand that. I've really been zeroed in on that this week. So if you could find that, it's one of the 12 as the Hebrew Bible calls the 12 minor prophets, the 12. And this is the fifth. Jonah is four chapters long, little book. You guys know Jonah and the story and how he went to Nineveh, the Gentile city. But before before we start going through the story just a little bit, let me remind you that this was not Jonah's day job. Jonah was a prophet to Israel. And Dean, I think we have that 2 Kings passage, uh, verse 14, uh, 23 up there. You don't have to flip to it now. But Jonah was not the prophet to Nineveh primarily. That was a side exploit for him. He actually worked for King 
Jeroboam, the king of Israel, who was a, a wicked king. And do you know we have that? Yeah, in the 15 year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. 41 years. So Jonah was a prophet during this 41-year reign of Jeroboam. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored, this is what this evil king did, he restored the border of Israel from Labahomoth as far as the Sea of Arabia, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. What Jonah did was he prophesied to this evil king and said, the Lord wants to expand the borders as far as they were expanded during the days of David and Solomon. And the Lord was so gracious to the people Israel that he did that very thing because he saw their affliction was very great. So before Jonah went to the Gentile city of Nineveh, he helped restore the borders for a backslidden Israel. So you need to know Jonah's backstory. So back to the book. Jonah, his name means dove because the Lord is speaking a message of peace to these people in Nineveh. Just as a reminder, Nineveh was the capital city of the gigantic powerful empire of Assyria. It was called the city of blood. Because the Assyrians were known for cruelty and torture that's almost been unrivaled in history. They would skin their enemies alive, horrible things to children, terrible nation. Jonah was, during this time of Elisha, Hosea, and Amos, he was called to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. Now, this is a mammoth call. It would be like Roger Beale being told, I want you to pack your bags, fly to North Korea, and walk up the palace steps and speak to Kim Jong-un. I've got something I want you to tell him, that he needs to repent. So Jonah has got a massive task in front of him. This great city of Nineveh. God calls it himself the great city three times in the book of Jonah. The great city. It took three days to travel across it. Well, you know the story. Jonah gets called by the Lord to go to Nineveh, verse 1 of chapter 1. Because why? The wickedness, their wickedness has come up before me. And he turns around. He hides from the presence of the Lord. He gets on a ship and he goes to Tarshish. And you remember that the sailors, the mighty storm comes up. And they say, what's going on? And Jonah confesses, and they end up throwing him overboard. And the waves of the sea die down. The Lord appointed a giant fish. He comes and takes a fish ride back to Nineveh, where he was supposed to go in the first place. And the Lord then changes him through, he, he prays this amazing prayer in the belly of the whale, and, and he repents to the Lord and he says, you are good, and I'm sorry. And he shows up in chapter 3, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches a five-word Hebrew sermon. And he says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. 40 more days, 
and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's probably an eclipse of the sun during this time historically. And the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. He proclaimed a fast for every man, woman, and child, and animal, so that the Lord, who knows, it says, God may yet relent, verse 9, and have compassion and turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish, which was the Lord's intention to judge Nineveh because of their wickedness. But when God saw, verse 10, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Because the Lord is so gracious, he's so kind, it says that he abounds in love and mercy. He's overflowing with mercy and gentleness to us. And he's slow to anger. Well, this hacked Jonah off. He was frustrated in verse 1 of 4. He seemed, to him, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and says, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall this by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. And you remember after this, the Lord's being so patient with Jonah. Jonah goes up on the hill to see if maybe the Lord would wipe out Nineveh still. Maybe, hopefully. And the Lord provides a leafy plant that grows over Jonah's head, and Jonah enjoyed the rest in that shade. The next day, the Lord provides a worm. He appointed a worm, sovereign worm, to eat the leafy plant. And the next day, he appoints a scorching east wind, and the plant dies. Jonah's pouting again, and he's mad. And the Lord says to him, you cared a lot about this leafy plant. You are concerned about the plant. Should I not then be concerned with the great city of Nineveh and 120,000 individuals that don't know their right from their left and also all the cattle? See, the cattle fasted and so they got into the blessing of the Lord at the end of this book. The Lord's like, you're concerned with one leafy plant. I'm concerned with 120,000 babies in the great city. Yes, they have been evil, but did you see what they did in their repentance? I can't help myself. I'm slow to anger. Josh preached last week so well, and he says, the Lord, Ezekiel says, does not delight in the death of the wicked. Jonah's hacked off. You know why I think he's hacked off? Because he knew what was about to happen. Because what happened... 150 years after this was that the Assyrian people who repented at his preaching rose up and they came in as a mighty horde and a mighty army, Sennacherib led them, and overthrew Israel, Jonah's hometown. The Assyrians who repented at the preaching of Jonah 150 years later shows up and they wipe out Israel. And I think Jonah knew that was going to happen prophetically. 
I think he was so mad because he saw how evil they were. And I think he knew that the Lord was going to use them to punish Israel. And that's why he was so angry about it. Well, take a right, two little books, if you would, to Nahum. It's right after Micah. Nahum is only three chapters long. And here's a little little timeline for you that would maybe help you out. I've got some dates up there to paint a picture for where we're at here. Jonah preached in 862 B.C. to Nineveh. They repented. 150 years later, here comes Nahum. And he prophesies to Assyria the year that Assyria invades Israel. 713 B.C. Well, about 70 years later, here comes Zephaniah. And he prophesies, hey, in about 30 years, Israel, you're going to, or Assyria, you're going to be overthrown by the Babylonians. And then sure enough, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was destroyed in 612 B.C., 250 years after Jonah, 100 years after Nahum. They were destroyed by the Babylonians and the Medes who were later destroyed by the Persians, but that's that's another story. The Lord knew that Assyria was going to be his tool for destroying Israel, and he forgave them anyway. By the way, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh who repented got promoted to judges. Because he says, the men of Nineveh who repented, they will rise up and judge this generation and bring condemnation on it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But now Jesus says, something greater than Jonah is here. So that generation received a reward from the Lord and they were honored. But 150 years later, that generation in Assyria came and wiped out Israel. So stay with me. I'm getting my point here in just one second. Nahum is all about the Lord saying, I hear you, Jonah. Yes, they were wicked. They turned back to their wicked ways, but I was not about to bring my righteous judgment on them until I first extended my loving salvation to them. In fact, he says of Nineveh, I, God says this in verse 14, I will prepare your grave for you are vile. And he says in chapter 2, Verse 6, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. Because what happened a hundred years after Nahum prophesied this is that there was a flood on the Tigris River and one of the gates crumbled in the city of Nineveh and the Babylonians came in and invaded and destroyed the city. It was such a wicked city that it says, In chapter 3, verse 11, you will become drunk and you will go into hiding. What happened was, as an aside, that's kind of interesting, the city of Nineveh collapses, the Assyrian people are essentially wiped out, and the city went into hiding and was undiscovered until 1840, when a British archaeologist discovered the city, the ruins of the city of Nineveh. The Lord says, They're so incredibly wicked that I've got my judgment, he says in Nahum, is going to be poured out like fire upon them. The entire book of Nahum is just war poetry. The Lord just over as a warrior saying, I'm going to wipe you out, Assyria. But not until he extended like a dove 
his loving salvation to them because the Lord can't help himself being so gentle and so long-suffering and so compassionate even to those he knows are going to hurt his people. Nahum was the seventh minor prophet. Jonah is the fifth. Seven in the scriptures always means completion. Five always means the grace of the Lord. In Jonah, grace, salvation. In Nahum, judgment, complete judgment is coming. Well, why am I saying this to you today? Because God, in this last hour, says that trial is coming, suffering and tribulation is coming, and there's a, going to be a temptation for us, just like in Thessalonians, to have faith to go through that, but to have love wane. Just like he says that because of lawlessness increasing, the love of many will grow cold. Well, in the church, because of suffering and persecution increasing, there's going to be a temptation for your love to go low. And, and to not, not only struggle with loving the world, but to struggle loving your brothers and sisters in the church. And God says, don't forget that I see the intensity of the wickedness around you. I see the persecution. I see the wrong. I see the attacks that are coming. And I've got you. I'll dig their graves. I will treat them as their sins deserve. You, right now, join with me in rejoicing in the possibility of their salvation. Don't pout like Jonah. I am long-suffering. I will not delay in bringing judgment. So he says, because the days are growing long and the hour is short and because of the love of many growing cold, he says, I want you to know me in fellowship with my heart, that I'm a God who delights in love and mercy and righteousness and justice. Sometimes I fear that we stop at love, where, a God who is, where we love a God who is love and what that really means is that we love love that is God. We cherish love, and, and that's our God. It means whatever we want it to mean. No, it does not. God is love. So I love who God tells me to love, and that's true love, not who I feel like loving. True love is wrapped up in truth. You cannot separate the, true, the two. So God says, I promise you, Jonah, that I'm going to take care of the Assyrians. But right now, do not worry. And I love that story again of the parables. Like, do not worry about what's right or what's wrong in terms of your own rights. They got paid the same as me, but I did more work. And the Lord says, I'm going to be generous to who I'm going to be generous to. Remember when he says to Moses, says, show me your glory. And the Lord says in Exodus 34, I'm going to pass before you and proclaim my name. Remember what he says? I am the Lord who delights in mercy, long-suffering, but I will make sure that the wicked are punished for their sins to multiple generations. He never separates the two out. Nahum is, the name means comfort. It sounds like avenge, but the name means comfort. I'll finish with this. The Lord says, in the year that Assyria invaded Israel, I'm going to speak a word of comfort to you. And that's what he's speaking to us right now. The comfort is this. 
I will take care of the justice side. I will avenge you. I want you to just entrust yourself to me now and trust my love. So Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would fill our hearts, God, with your love. I pray, Father, that we would not be hard-hearted towards those who have hurt us, who've wounded us, God. And that in these days, Lord, as lawlessness increases, I pray, Lord, that our love would stay heated up. Lord, I pray if there's suffering that comes, Lord, I pray that our love would not wane. I pray for these precious brothers and sisters, Father, that you would fill them with hope and joy and encouragement this week, God. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in what you rejoice in. Father, I pray that you would just bring many into the kingdom who are lost right now. Those who have done the most vile things, Lord, bring them in, rescue them from the darkness, and let us rejoice in that, Father. I pray for true repentance to be granted and for revival here, Lord. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen.